This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, we are looking this evening at verses 7 through 11. Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its beauty, for its power, for its truth. Father, we pray that as we study it tonight, that you would be our teacher. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. With this short passage, we enter into the second section, major section in the book of Judges. Really, everything up to this point has been introduction. Uh, really serving to set before us the failure of that second generation. Uh, after Joshua had passed from the scene, the elders who had served with him, those who had experienced those things, second generation came up that turned away from the Lord. And then the second part of that introduction that we looked at last time had to do with uh, sort of the, the preview uh, of what was to come and the reasons for it, kind of in general terms, to prepare us for what to expect. Now we come into that section that perhaps is most familiar, uh, familiar to us about the book of Judges, and it has to do with that cycle that Judges is known for, and we'll, we'll look at that tonight. But uh, this second section really goes through the end of chapter 16, and it's looking at the judges and the ups and downs of Israel, and then the remaining section of the book, chapter 17 to the end, just uh, takes a look at uh, just the, the low level to which Israel had sunk, uh, just really uh, where they were uh, as, a, as a nation, pretty, pretty bleak picture, but we'll get there eventually. Uh, but tonight, we're looking at the first judge who's mentioned, whose name is Othniel. Now, this passage is very bare bones. I mean, as we read through it, you, uh, you, get, you get that picture. 
I think that's for a reason. Because as we read through that uh, passage last time from chapter uh, 2, verse 6 to chapter 3, verse 6, it sort of sets the scene of, of the apostasy and the Lord's response to it uh, in general terms. But now we see it played out and specifically with regard to one judge. And all of these steps are there. Uh, there's seven uh, steps to this pattern. And they're all there, kind of in this bare-bones way. Now, later, there'll be much more elaboration about one of them or the other, the judge or the, the wickedness or the deliverance. But for right now, it's kind of like he gives us a pattern. This is, this is just what it looks like, just kind of the bare-bones outline, the pattern to give you an overview of it before looking at other cases in more detail. So that's what we're going to look at tonight, is just kind of this, this overview of the pattern. A lot of details left out, just sort of the, the bare bones pattern, just to let us see how it works. Later there'll be more detail, uh, but for now, just kind of this, this straight through overview of what's going on. I like the way uh, Ralph Davis in his commentary describes it. It's like learning to play a game. You know, if, you, if you've got a board game you've never played before, uh, and you're teaching somebody to play it, what do you do? Well, you explain the rules to them. But if they've never played it before, the rules have a very abstract uh, feel to them since they don't know the game, they don't know what to expect. So you sort of explain the rules, and then you maybe play a sample game, part of a game, just to kind of let them see how it works, and then you may play in earnest, you know, for keeps. But um, that's kind of what this is. This is just sort of an overview to see how the pattern works, and then later there'll be expansions and variations on it. So that's what we want to do tonight, is just look at what's going on. Step one, not surprising, Israel goes apostate. Verse seven, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, that's not surprising. We don't read that and gasp. That's basically what we expect, because the preview told us that would happen. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, they abandoned the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to plunderers, who did, in fact, plunder them. So we're prepared for that. It's not a surprise. That's what we are expecting. But let's look at what happens. They do evil in the sight of the Lord. By that, we, we assume uh, acts of wickedness, but the biggest evil is just their covenant unfaithfulness, their infidelity to the Lord. And, and it's put, uh, it's described in both sides of the coin. They forgot the Lord, their God. Striking, uh, but we go back to what was said at the end of verse 10, they did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So they forgot their covenant God. And I think that word forgot has not so much to do with what they've got in their brains as the commitments of the covenant that they have to be faithful to the Lord. So that's one side of the coin. The flip side then is who did they remember? They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Those are plural. Talked a little last time about Canaanite religion, fertility religion, Baal, the god of rain, the god of uh, agricultural fruitfulness, uh, Asherah or Astarte, different variations of the name, uh, being his female consort, 
and it was uh, the Canaanite mythology, their union that produces the fruitfulness of the earth. But just in case they forget, uh, Canaanite religion involved practices designed to remind Baal and uh, Asherah what they needed to be doing to assure the fruitfulness, to assure the next crop comes in and so forth. Uh, so that was what Israel had come into. That's what they were being exposed to by their failure to drive the Canaanites from the land, uh, as the Lord had, had told them to eradicate them from the land. And so that's what they do. The Baals and the Ashtaroth is plural because there could be any number of sites, high places, shrines to Baal, shrines to Asherah, the Asherah poles, uh, scattered all over throughout uh, the land. And so that's what it's referring to in the plural, these various places where Baal worship uh, was taking place. And so they forget the Lord who brought them and their, their ancestors out of Egypt, and they turn instead to this Canaanite religion, serve the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And uh, as we said last time, you see just the weight, the force, the power of sin uh, at work. Uh, in that they are, are doing this. So that's the first step in this cycle. Israel goes apostate. Second step, the Lord responds. He's angry with them, and he hands them over to their enemies. Verse 8, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. Now, the Lord loves them too much to just be indifferent to their unfaithfulness, much as you would be angry if your spouse betrayed you because there is a jealous love there that what is rightfully yours is, is given to another. And the Lord is angry, not because he hates his people, but because he loves them. And it says that he sold them into the hand of this king of Mesopotamia, and the people served him eight years. Now, there's some significant language going on here. First of all, the Lord sold them. It doesn't say necessarily he just gave them. to. He says he sold them in, into this, and they served. He sold them into slavery because of their sin. But also notice that they turned from the Lord, they, they forgot the Lord, they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, so in God's providence they served the king of Mesopotamia. And sin's always that, but sin is enslaving. That's a, a graphic illustration that the one who turns from the Lord and serves sin is a slave. Because they abandoned the Lord and served these, this pagan religion, they wind up literally enslaved under the power of this king, sold into slavery by none other than the Lord himself as a disciplinary measure. Now, who was it they served? Cushan Rishathaim. Now, a lot of times in the scripture, there's a, there's a lot in a name. Now, we know that. Uh, Jacob becomes Israel. You know, before that, Ab Abram becomes Abraham, father of many nations. Um, well, sometimes it's easy to hit a name like this and think there's nothing to it. His, pro his parents probably did not name him Kushan Rishathaim. They may have named him Kushan. I think it was a popular Mesopotamian name. I don't know. But they probably, his last name was probably not Rishathaim, and I doubt his parents gave him that name. As you see, Israel in suppression can't do a whole lot. There's not a whole lot they can do, but one thing they can do is mock 
their oppressors, their tormentors, by giving them names, by giving them epithets that uh, just sort of make fun of them. Granted, it's sort of third grade level behavior, but, you know, when you're under oppression, what else can you do? So they call him Kushan Rishathaim. Rishathaim means something like doubly evil, doubly wicked. Something like Kushan, Kushan the bad, you know, Kushan the doubly wicked. Now, he's king of Mesopotamia. Now, the ESV very helpfully translates the Hebrew as to the area that it denotes, the region of Mesopotamia, area of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Uh, but what the Hebrew says is, is he is king of Aram Naharaim, which means Aram of the two rivers, Tigris and the Euphrates. So there's a certain rhythm to this, because the way he's portrayed in Judges is Kushan Rishathaim from Aram Naharaim. They may have even had some song about him, I don't know. But there was a rhyme to it. There was a rhythm there. It means Kushan the double bad from Aram of the double rivers. You know, doubly wicked from the double rivers. Seems to be how they knew this guy. Uh, again, there seems to be some level uh, from the Israelites and certainly from the point of view of the writer of Judges, from the divine point of view, it sort of mocks this guy. And it reminds us that he is only the instrument of the Lord. He may be the doubly evil terror of Israel. But he's only a little instrument in the hand of the Lord. Double evil from the double rivers. He says judges isn't any fun. But what was not fun was their oppression. The people of Israel served this guy for eight years. Uh, that's not fun and that's no good. And that brings us then to the third uh, stage in this cycle. And that is Israel cries out for help. Verse 9, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Well, the first part, they cry out for help. This, this must have been miserable. Uh, they had forgotten the Lord. Uh, the Lord puts them, sells them into slavery to this Mesopotamian potentate, and their lives are miserable. And so they cry out. It doesn't say they repent. Uh, the word cry out could could maybe imply there was repentance, but it doesn't necessarily mean there was repentance. And in fact, that term seems to be deliberately avoided. In fact, you go back over to the sort of the preview passage in verse 18. It says the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. That's verse, chapter 2, verse 18. They're groaning, which actually echoes uh what they were doing under the oppression of Egypt when the Lord brought them out of Egypt. They were groaning in their slavery. But even there, the word repentance isn't used. Their groaning expresses their misery. They cry out to the Lord. That's a good thing. You know, they, they're not crying out to Baal, not crying out to Asherah. They're crying out to the Lord. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there was repentance. And it certainly doesn't explicitly say there was repentance. And notice the Lord's reaction. Lord responds. What is the Lord's reaction there uh, to them? Well, he obviously cares about them. 
he feels compassion for them. Perhaps the best expression of, the, of his response is not stated here, but his action indicates it, is in Judges chapter 10, verse 16. Judges 10, verse 16. It says, They put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he, the Lord, became impatient over the misery of Israel. That's uh, a, a, a perfect, uh, perfectly fine translation. The word there can mean impatient. Literally, it says of the Lord, his soul was short with the misery. His soul was short with the misery. I really like the way the New American Standard renders that. He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. And I think that same dynamic is in play here. And each time they call out to the Lord, uh, that the Lord responds with with compassion uh, for them. And, and in spite of the fact, it doesn't say they repented. It simply says they're miserable. They cry out to the Lord. His response, verse 9, the next, uh, next step in this pattern, the Lord raises up for them a deliverer. Verse 9, he raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, namely Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now, we don't know much about Othniel other than he appears in chapter 1, where we learn he seems to be a fairly bold and enterprising young guy, and he becomes Caleb's son-in-law. Uh, one twelve, Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, uh, actually his nephew, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for his wife, where he became not only Caleb's nephew, but also his son-in-law. So we, we, that's all we know about him. But, uh, but what we know about him seems like a pretty bold guy. So it's really not a surprise that this is the guy that the Lord raises up to be the first judge that we read about in the book to uh, deliver Israel, Caleb's nephew and son-in-law. So good good family there. Of course, we all know Caleb is the, one of the two spies along with Joshua who came back and acknowledged the challenges in taking the promised land. But with the Lord's help, they could do it. Unfortunately, Israel went with the majority report and spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness for their incalcitrance. Now, very bare bones. doesn't say much about him. Other judges will learn a great deal about. Uh, but I think that's for a reason, to remind us that ultimately what's important here is not the particular judge in question, but the Lord. Just like Kushan Rishathaim was an instrument in the hands of the Lord, uh, the Lord uses these judges that he himself raises up to bring deliverance to his people. Uh, ultimately, it is the Lord who saves. Well, that brings us to the fifth uh, step in this pattern uh, that we've come to, the apostasy, the Lord's anger, Israel's cry for help. Well, we're raising up a deliverer. Fifth, the Lord gives victory to Israel through his deliverer. Verse 10, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. Might be a good time since the word he judged Israel comes up. The name of the book is Judges. Uh, but really, I mean, we gather this from the sense and how the word is used in the book. It's not judging in the sense that we normally think of a judge, someone who ju- decides judicial matters, although they possibly could function in that way and at times seem to. But the way the word is used, he judged Israel, uh, it seems to be used synonymously with he led. He governed Israel. He led Israel, which is... Uh, uh, an acceptable uh, sense of the Hebrew word as well. So just to keep that in mind. Uh, 
But he gets victory. He went out to war. The Lord gave doubly wicked Cushan, king of Aram Naharahim, Mesopotamia, into his hand. And he prevailed. His hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He leads Israel, and they actually throw off this guy. They defeat him, and they regain their independence. And we recognize that this was with the Spirit of the Lord on him under the power of the Lord. Now, Israel uh, found itself under oppression. The Lord can use and does use foreign nations to, to discipline Israel, to discipline his people. But he can also use Israel, as he did in the conquest, to be his instrument of judgment on other nations, on these pagan nations of the Canaanites. Fortunately, Israel didn't go as far as the Lord instructed them to, but Israel was God's instrument of judgment on them for their wickedness. And you see this in other places in the Scripture, Jeremiah 27, uh, where Jeremiah foretells how the Babylonians are going to take Jerusalem, take Judah, uh, and will rule over them. But then Babylon's time is coming, you know, and when his, when the time comes for that land, the Lord will raise up somebody who will capture them. And we're reminded of the fact that the ebb and flow of nations is not a matter of chance, not a matter of historical accident, but not only the events of, of your life and mine, but the, the, the lives, the duration, the destiny of nations is under the sovereignty of our Lord, whether you see it on a personal level, on a relatively small national level, like right here, or, uh, you know, on the level of world superpowers, uh, like Babylon, Persia, Rome, Britain, the U.S., the Lord is sovereign over the, uh, the outcomes of nations. Sixth step, Israel then enjoys peace. After the Lord raises up a judge, the judge leads them with the Lord's power, gives victory to Israel. Sixth, Israel enjoys peace. Eleven, so the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Rest for 40 years. You see the mercy of God here? They suffered for eight, and they have rest for five times that. That's grace. That's mercy. The Lord gave them rest, in this case, five times longer than they were oppressed. Land had rest from oppression, rest from affliction for 40 years. And really, that's the Lord's preference. The Lord is, is pleased to give them rest, to bless them with that, that rest. He would prefer to do that if he needs to. He'll discipline them, just like your parents would prefer uh, to, to not have to discipline your children, to treat them well, to give them good things, that they're doing what they ought to be doing. Things are going well if you... Need to, you will discipline, and that's what the Lord does. But his preference certainly seems to be to, to give them rest. And what an opportunity. What an occasion to learn, to see that Baal worship, worshiping the Ashtaroth, didn't turn out so well. That's the Lord they called out to. It's the Lord who delivers them, and now the Lord has blessed them with peace. What an opportunity to set out on a new course. Worshiping the Lord, serving the Lord, being faithful to his covenant. You know, Paul in, in Romans 11 says, uh, he's talking about, you know, the, 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 the Jews and some of them being cut off, Gentiles being grafted in. Paul says, consider the kindness and the severity of God. 
God would prefer that you learn and grow in his kindness. But if he needs to be severe with you, he will. And here Israel has this opportunity, 40 years of peace, 40 years of rest, to draw near to the Lord, to seek him. But there's that ominous note, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died, and it stops. So it kind of ends on this on a so, somewhat foreboding note. Othniel was alive, they have four, he delivers them, they have 40 years of rest, but then he dies. What's going to happen next? That's the seventh stage, is the deliverer, the judge, then dies, the seventh step in the phase. So that's it. And we're going to see variations of that later. Some of the, some of the accounts of the judges will not include some of those statements. But that's the basic cycle. That's the paradigm. That's the idea. Israel goes apostate. The Lord's angry with them, and he hands them over to his enemies. They cry for help. He raises up a deliverer, gives victory to that deliverer, and deliverance for Israel. They enjoy peace for a time, but then the judge dies, and that forgetfulness seems to sink in, seems to reassert itself, and Baal worship and Asherah worship start to look pretty good again. The judge dies. The Lord doesn't die. The judge does. Now, a couple thoughts in closing. Uh, one is, is simply the, the outward and physical. Um, earlier we were praying, and uh, one of you acknowledged and gave thanks to the Lord for the freedom that we have to gather publicly in worship without fear of arrest or worse. Um, very easy to take that for granted. Many believers don't enjoy that. Bad as our economy is right now, we don't have million percentage point runaway inflation. Uh, we have a fairly stable social structure despite its flaws and sins. Um, we need to be sure to give thanks to the Lord for the rest that we enjoy as a land to acknowledge that that is his blessing, that that is his provision, that there are many nations in the world that do not enjoy that even today, and there is no guarantee that the Lord should see fit to continue to bless our land with that kind of stability and rest as well. Unfortunately, all too often we take peace, peace, we take rest, we take ease as license to sin. Unfortunately, it seems like when times are good, we tend to forget the Lord, and it takes a 9-11 to send people into the churches again. Why is that? Why does the Lord have to demonstrate his severity? Why don't we respond to his kindness and take advantage of the opportunities that he gives us to draw near to him? But also, on a, on a more inward note, um, this pattern is our pattern. The sin... The grace of God in afflicting us, maybe outwardly, often inwardly, one way or another, with guilt or difficulty or struggle, are calling out to the Lord, the Lord's mercy and patience and grace to us and forgiving us and healing us and restoring us, bringing us back to a place of, of rest. If you're like me, sometimes you have to acknowledge that the judges cycle isn't merely a historical or a political or a military thing. It's all too often a personal thing of going through that same cycle. Uh, we need to learn from the book of Judges the grace of God toward us 
uh, and that by his grace, those cycles of sin would stop, that they would end. But to give thanks to the Lord uh, for his kindness, but also for his loving severity. And learn the lesson of judges, of the, of, of the grace of our God, that when we repent and turn to him, he is merciful. And in Christ Jesus, he forgives us and he receives us back. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these short verses. Uh, thank you for Othniel, Lord, a man who seemed to, to know you and love you and served you well, though we don't know much about him. Uh, but Father, above all, we thank you for you and thank you for how you at work, are at work in this passage and uh, throughout, the, throughout the book of Judges, throughout the scriptures and throughout history. Uh, Lord, that you are the same yesterday, today and forever. Father, we thank you for the mercies you show our land and for the mercies that you show us in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray that we wouldn't be so cyclical in this way. Though, Lord, when we sin, help us to repent and draw us back to yourself. But, Father, we pray for lives of faithfulness. We pray for lives of obedience. We pray for lives of, uh, of, of steadfast pursuit of you and of your ways in this fallen world. Lord, give us grace to do that. We love you. We want to live for your glory this week. Help us to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.